Hello and welcome to Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and if happiness were a color, the color it would be for me would be the color of peach rings. So like an orangish yellow. That's very specific. Um, my name is Caitlin, <laughs> and if happiness were a color, it would be the color of curry, because I like curry. It tastes good. Ooh, I like it. I'm Kristen, and if happiness were a color for me, it would probably be that, like, bright, it, almost like a teal or a turquoise, like an aqua, like sort of like a summer. My hydro flask is the right color. Nice. <laughs> color. I'm Victoria, and if happiness were a color for me, it would be that very pale green of, like, new grass. Ooh. Oh, that's so pretty. All right, then. Well, a big welcome to Victoria V.E. Schwab. Schwab is the number one New York Times, USA, and indie bestselling author of more than 20 books, including the acclaimed Shades of Magic series, the Villain series, the Cassidy Blake series, and the international bestseller, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. Their work has received critical acclaim, been translated into over two dozen languages, and been optioned for television and film. First Kill, a YA vampire series based on Schwab's short story of the same name, is currently in the works at Netflix, with Emma Roberts' Bellatrice Productions producing. Schwab's most recent book, YA fantasy, Gallant, just came out at the beginning of March. Victoria, we are so thrilled to have you on. Tell us a little bit about Gallant. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, so Gallant, the easiest way to describe it is The Secret Garden Meets Crimson Peak. The slightly longer pitch would be that uh, Gallant is about a teenage girl named Olivia Pryor, who has spent most of her life at an orphanage with nothing of her family's except for a journal full of entries that seem to devolve into madness and illustrations that don't quite make sense. But at the back of the journal is a note from Olivia's mother warning Olivia that she will be safe so long as she stays away from Gallant. For years, Olivia has no idea what this means. And then she gets a letter from an uncle she's never met inviting her home to the family estate, which is called Gallant. Olivia gets there only to find no uncle and a house falling into disrepair, a garden being strangled to death by strange weeds, and a wall at the back of the property with a locked door that seems to lead nowhere. So I'm lucky enough that I got to read an advanced copy uh, a few months ago, and something I really appreciated about it was the immediate connection I felt to Olivia. I mean, she's not like a super cuddly, like petting the puppies type of character, but she was immediately like a complex, engaging, and like an extremely sympathetic character. And so that's what I really wanted to ask about. For aspiring writers, how can we approach creating that kind of immediate depth in our characters? Ooh, I mean, Olivia is an interesting one because she's also a nonverbal protagonist. And so a lot of the exploration of her character came through, like, what does the shape of a voice take? And like, what are the different ways in which we communicate or are unable to communicate with the world around us? Like, I would say that while Olivia doesn't rely on spoken word, she uh, is extremely clear in her methods of communication from body language to sign language to interacting with her environment. I think for me, whenever I'm creating characters, regardless of their age or gender or sexuality, I, or whether they're a protagonist or an antagonist or somewhere along the spectrum, I need to know three things. I need to know what they fear, what they want, and what they're willing to do to get what they want. And I think from that, I'm able to build a bit of a profile for them, kind of a 
a psychological profile. And I can really understand what drives them. And I think motivation for characters is everything. And I think it's also what allows, you know, that quintessentially quote unquote unlikable character. I hate that phrase so much, but the unlikable character to be as sympathetic as more traditionally likable ones, because you discover that it's not actually likability, it's relatability. And I actually think that Olivia is an extremely relatable teenage girl. I mean, she's angry and she's lonely and she feels lost uh, in her life and in her environment. I mean, who doesn't? And so I think really understanding that relatability comes through specificity, not like broad sweeps and understanding the real clear crux of what drives us as people. I really like that relatability and specificity. Would you say, I know for most of your stories, you think about them for a long time and they kind of percolate and and come to fruition. Would you say that those specifics are what you start with? Or do you start with more, you know, a feeling about the world or a certain emotion you want to convey and then the specificity comes? I start with the setting. So I almost always, for me, setting is a primary character. And so the setting breeds the cast in that way, because like when you have the setting, then it breeds the insiders and the outsiders. And I tend to write about the outsiders, the people who don't fit cleanly in. So with a story like Gallant, I had the house, I had the estate, and I had this garden wall. And I knew that a girl was going to be drawn to the house, but Olivia came a little bit later because I was looking at this door in this wall. And the whole thing about walls is that they only work when they keep something in or hold something out. But the wall in Gallant is just a piece of a wall at the edge of the property. You can walk all the way around it, which begs the question, why does it need a locked door? And I spent years trying to answer that. And I kept thinking that I was going to be writing a fairy tale. And if you think about what a fairy tale is, it it deals with the line between the wild and the domestic. It deals with kind of like the home and the away. It really has that kind of holly black boundary quality to it. And I kept trying to do that. And I kept thinking, I'm not, I don't want to write a fairy tale. So what am I writing? What's beyond the door? And then about three years into the process of turning over this Rubik's cube uh, in my head, I realized, oh, I'm not writing a fairy tale. I'm writing an underworld tale. And as soon as that clicked, it was like everything else fell into place. And I understood so much more about Olivia, who until that point had just been kind of like broad strokes of a character who was going to be my outsider insider, you know, my one who's going to cross the boundaries and find multiple places at which she could be at home. But it, it all started with the door. I love that. Such a cool image. On the, on the technical level, I'm really curious about how you get across like emotional backstory without info dumping, that sort of information. So have you found any good ways to sort of give pieces rather than the whole story? Of course. I mean, not of course. I don't mean of course to sound like, of course I know. I just mean that is like the grand difficulty, especially when you write speculative or fantasy. And what I found is that because I also write like much broader fantasy novels like the Shades of Magic series. And I think when you're world building and and backstory is a kind of world building, it's world building for a character instead of a place. Again, it's not about telling the entirety. It's about telling the specific. So much like Okay, this is going to get really nerdy, but like, I like to think that writers fall into one of two categories. They obviously fall into many more, but writers of a fantasy fall into one of two categories. If you look at a story that we're telling as a house, there are certain writers who give you the keys to the house. They let you into the house. They let you walk around the house. Everything you can see or touch, and if you don't see it, it's not there. 
And then there are writers like me who don't give you the keys to the house. They part the curtains on one of the windows. And what happens is you can look through the window and you can see the furnishings of a single room, maybe an open door, maybe a touch of hall, but you're given specific details of one corner of the house. And it's up to you to be able to extrapolate the rest of the house based on what you can see. And I think when you're building characters, then the character is the house. When you're building worlds and the world is the house, it's about picking the details that are going to furnish that room and choosing them in a way that they can then serve to help the reader infer everything else. So it's really about the specific choices. Like when you look at Olivia, this isn't really a spoiler because it comes in the opening chapters. The way that Olivia responds to antagonistic behavior can be like seen in two scenes. She has, I have only chosen two. I could have chosen 10. We don't follow her at Maryland's for more than two chapters. And that could have been in another version of the novel. It could have been the whole first third of the book. But I chose two scenes, one in which a, a matron tells her that she can't play piano and Olivia's response to being told that. And the other one is when two or three of the other girls try to take away her journal. And she responds by going down into the cellar underneath the house, underneath Marilyn's, gathering up a jar full of bugs, putting fire ash on them so that they stain, and then dumping them into the girl's bed. And the girl has her hair chopped off the next day because it could be full of bugs. And like that is, that tells you everything you need about Olivia and how she reacts to things. So it's about like picking and designing a specific flashback that can give us the context that we need to move forward. Would you say I that just for wanted you? To say oh, go ahead. Really quick, that the uh, the piano one, the language around it, and I don't want to spoil what happens, but um, it's like yeah. one of my most favorite characterizations ever. Oh, thank you so much. So you mentioned that in an alternate version of the novel, those scenes, or you know, ten or so of those scenes, could have been the first third of the book. Do you write those scenes during pre-writing, or once you have you know those three necessary elements pinned down, you just know exactly what you want to present? I mean, I'm a fairly extensive outliner. So what I do is a lot of my discovery excitement, I always like people who pants, people who don't plan will be like, oh, but where's the joy? Where's the mystery? Where's the discovery? I get all of that in the outlining part. That for me is pre-writing. So I'm creating like the scaffolding in the pre-writing and a really strong understanding of the structure. And part of that is that I design my endings first like the last page of the novel first. And then I rewind the entire story to figure out how it starts in order to get to that last point and have it land the way I want. And so all of that happens for me in the designing part. And part of the designing part, the scaffolding part, is understanding the pacing and structure of the novel. So something like giving the first third to Marilyn's changes the entire dynamic And this is a book that is meant to be read in a single day if you want to, if you have the time. It's supposed to be the kind of book that is deceptively small in that way. Hopefully it will haunt you long after you finish reading it, but it should be consumable, bite-sized. To that point, I made decisions, craft decisions, some people might agree with them, some might disagree, to keep it as ephemeral as possible. And that means kind of sliding through certain things. So yeah, another version of the story exists where... It's more about her life at Maryland's, and that makes it more middle grade. And another version of the story would exist where the master of the house, my antagonist, is manifest as like a sexy teenage boy, and that makes it very YA. None of these things exist because those are the choices I didn't make. But I also am very aware that I tend to have a very slow first third of my novels. And so I was trying to like 
give myself a, a little bit of a chance, whereas I feel like I would have slowed down the narrative even more if I had kept her from getting to Gallant any sooner. So how do you, maybe this is uh, treading on territory we've already been in, but how do you choose those specific scenes? How do you choose uh, what is most important to show? You're showing um, at Marilance her reactions to people being antagonistic toward her. Why are those the things that needed to come first for her? Well, because once she gets to Gallant, it's a story of found family. It's a story of nurturing. We have to understand what she hasn't been given in order to understand what she wants and why she wants it and why both sides of the wall become tempting. And so she doesn't actually need to encounter as much antagonism or especially not the mundane antagonism of other children once she gets too gallant. The story isn't really about that. The story is about establishing a girl who is lonely and who craves not parents who she has no context for. Her parents are a mystery to be solved. But what she does crave is autonomy and a place of her own, a house if not a home, right? And so these are the things we need to set up for her. We need to set up that she is alienated. We need to set up that she is angry. We need to set up that she is distrusting. We need to set up that she is curious. We need to set up that she wants to solve puzzles, that she wants the closure of these things so that when we send her to Gallant and the puzzle gets bigger, but the answers are also present if she can find them, then we understand why her Interest lies not in simply being as cozy as possible, not in befriending Matthew, but in understanding this landscape. I really like how you just put that because I feel like that's something I talk to writers about all the time is setting up who it is your character is before you throw them into a situation where so that their actions will make sense. Exactly. I always say that in the beginning is for laying out the pieces on the board and then the middle is for playing the game so that by the end you care about who wins. The relatability you talk about. So something I've struggled with my own writing, and I see a lot of other new writers struggling with too, is giving their characters a very kind of dramatic, emotionally strong backstory without having the main character come across as whiny or overly dramatic when they're, you know, thinking about this terrible, tragic past they've gone through. Would you have any tips for handling that? Yeah, I think often we have this temptation to make it bombastic. We have the temptation to give them the most tragic story, to have it be the most melodramatic. I think that's difficult to relate to because the vast majority of us have encountered tragedy in the small sense, not in the large sense. Like we all are much more mundane than that. And if you think about relatability as a way for the reader to connect with the character and also to care about the character, because that's really what it comes down to, right? Like if we don't care about the people the story is happening to, we don't care about the story. This, that's The people are why we come back. Think about a series. You don't come back to a series for the plot. You come back because you want more of the characters. Like that's like, no one has ever come back to a series been like, well, I hated everyone in that book, but I was really curious about what happens next. Like you don't, we care about people. And so I think it's like, I encountered this a lot in my villain series where they're awful people doing awful things, but the motives were deeply relatable. And I think if you look like when you're building your characters, stop trying to make them different from everyone in the world. And remember that they're in the world. People are inherently familiar to us. We understand what it feels like. We don't understand world domination, right? We understand jealousy. We understand grief. We understand covetousness. We understand allegiance and friendship. And like, these are things we understand. So I always say, like, see if you can make it smaller. Like, get down. Even if you then layer a big tragedy on top of it, those big tragedies are really hard to relate to. So if you can kind of drill down, say, say a character lost her whole family. Well, which one was she closest to? Like, there's a hierarchy there. 
Like we, we don't care about all things and all people equally. Was it the nature of the loss that made it tragic? Was it the timing? Like, how did it inform them? How did it change them? Who were they before the tragedy? Like, really getting down and trying to, like, understand the person at their core. And I think that's why I always come back to, like, what drives them? What do they want? And what are they afraid of? Like, these are the things that we relate to because these are the things we experience as people. Yeah, I just think make it smaller is such great advice in general. And it really does seem like that will resolve a lot of sort of sticky beginnings or like backstories that sometimes we see in in writing. Well, and I think like that's not to say you can't make it small as the underpinning, you know, as the scaffold for a much larger, much more dramatic thing. It's just I think that like until you're able to drill down to the meat of it, readers will always have a hard time connecting to somebody for whom they like don't see a piece of themselves. Really great advice. We do have a couple of questions that were submitted by listeners. If sure. you're okay with some rapid fire questions. Um, the first one is, you already answered because you already said you're a plotter. What are mm-hmm. your favorite writing rituals? Oh man, I don't believe in writing rituals. I'm the most ordinary person. I'm sorry, guys. But like I, before the pandemic, I toured most of the year. And the thing is that like when you're on the road, as much as I was, like every ritual becomes an excuse not to work. Like every ritual becomes like suddenly, oh, the light's not at the right angle. My chair doesn't face the right direction. The tea's not exactly right. All of a sudden, like these become reasons not to show up. So I actually try and like skim it all off. I like to have a cup of tea just because my hands get cold. I like to, but I use a Pomodoro method. I honestly, depending on my focus for that day, will take it from 25 minutes down to like 15. I try and make it like I have asking for the least number of demands possible on myself the least number of distractions least number of ways out so if I only have 15 minutes I have 15 minutes maybe I open the document and I like make eye contact with my work so I keep the creative door propped open for the next day like I think that I'm always trying to remind myself that like all progress is progress all of it and I think that like the rituals are kind of antithetical now like when I'm home I live in Edinburgh and when I'm home I like I go to the coffee shop in the morning I have a coffee shop really close to my house. I like my tea. I go there and I work for like two hours because I know that 10 to 12 are my best writing hours of my day before America wakes up, before New York publishing wakes up, before anyone can demand anything like t- 10 to 12 in the morning. If, if I can do that, I can also do another window in the afternoon. If I haven't gotten any writing done in the morning, it's really hard for me to start in the afternoon. So like the little things like that, but otherwise, no, like it needs to be simple enough that I can do it anywhere. I've definitely used uh, writing rituals as an excuse myself. So <laughs> yeah. Oh, so have I. So have I. I hope that didn't sound like judgy. Like I have 100% done it for years. I, yeah, on no, they're very valid as excuses for sure. <laughs> Yes. Um, this next one, where do your ideas come from and how do you go about <laughs> developing them? Now, that could be a whole podcast in itself, oh but we'll just keep it short. I was going to say, here's what I will say, because this is an impossible question to answer. Like, I have 21 novels. Everyone was a different idea. I can't, they don't all come from the same. I don't have a well in my backyard that I, like, dig up ideas from in a bucket. What I will say, though, is, like, I, the reason I take issue with the question <laughs> not not the person asking it, is that like we talk about ideas as if they're single entities. But for me, ideas are the ingredients in a meal. I don't go around and collect a single idea. And that's the idea. I go around and I collect microscopic pieces of my story. And often I don't even realize how they're going to fit together until they have fit together. 
Like, I just, so like, you know, the estate and the garden wall and the underworld tale or Addie LaRue was a Faustian bargain and art and muses and immortality and Peter Pan and dementia. Like I, these are, these are ingredients in the meal and I find them by literally just going about my life. I read compulsively. I will never find an idea in another person's book, but I might find a turn of phrase that gives me an ingredient of my own. I might look at a picture I might be scrolling on Instagram through, I like follow a lot of visual artists and I might come across a single picture that makes me think, oh, that makes me think of X, which makes me think of Y, which makes me think of Z. Like, but they're just ingredients. I think we give ideas too much credit when we make them into these big things that you have to come across, that you have to go find. It's like, I just want to, I want to plant my field, you know? I think some people get too dedicated to their idea too, without being able to change it into a story. Exactly. It's like nothing that we do is written in blood or stone. Okay, so this one is, how do you find courage to start a new project? You are clearly a champion at starting new projects. So does that ever stress you out or? No, um, I just think like maybe that's one of the things that gets easier with time. By the time I start the project, you know, if we talk about starting, meaning drafting, like a first draft, I've already done months, if not years of legwork on it. So like at that point, it's just kind of excitement because I have been building. I don't ever like get that idea together and immediately start writing a book like it, that for me, like the idea steeps for months, if not years, as I put things in the pot with it and figure it out and do like voice tests and perspective tests and tense tests and figure out like what its shape is going to be and how I'm going to tell it. So I think maybe it would be scarier if I truly just did that like free fall, but that free fall is not in my nature. I'm too anxious a person and like my joy comes from the execution of the plan. So I don't feel, I feel fear while I'm writing it, but not while I'm starting it. When I'm starting it, it feels like it's all potential energy. When you first started writing and um, you were slightly less established, mm -hmm. I mean, no author has ever quite made it, but if anybody yeah. has kind of made it and is kind of <laughs> able to write what they want, I think you're in a pretty good spot. Oh my um, goodness. So when, I know it's, it's more complicated it's than that. It's a terrifying idea that I'm a veteran. <laughs> so when yeah. you're first starting, um, it sounds like your writing process spans uh, years. How did you cope with like being patient and, and feeling hopeful enough to spend that much time on a project when um, you weren't sure it was going to? Well, I have, um, I often talk about my brain as a six burner stove. So I have like one project on high heat and five others on low heat. And yes, certain of my books, like Addie LaRue took 10 years. I've been in publishing for 12 years. Addie LaRue took 10, but I had other projects which didn't. So it's just that like, while I'm being patient with the books that need more steep time, I'm working on the books that are ready. So I always have a cue and that way if something isn't ready or if I'm not confident in it yet, I'll write something that I have a higher degree of confidence in that I think might demand a little bit less of me that might give me some confidence, some courage or just some establishment. So I have books that were written in years and I have books that were written in months. And it's just like, I like to have some of all of that. I like to have, usually I like to keep one decade long book in my pocket. I didn't realize Addie was going to take a decade. So that's like, a weird thing to say, but I like to have one book that I'm not in a hurry. I always call it my side piece, my little affair, because it's the one I'm stealing time with. It's not under contract. No one's waiting on it. And I'm not financially dependent on it because of that. So that one gets to sit for as long as it wants to sit. And I might play with it every few months and check on it, but I'm not rushing that one. But I'm a very impatient creative who feels like I always need to be creating. And that's why I always make sure that I have, in addition to that, 
side piece that I have three to four projects which would be ready to go as soon as I'm ready to write them. So I'm finishing up book four in the Shades of Magic series right now. As soon as that is done, I know exactly what I'm writing next. As soon as that is done, I know what I'm writing next. So the next three are all ready. They've been steeping while I was writing Addie and then Gallant. So it's like having that turnover means that like you at least can put away the fear that you are twiddling your thumbs while you wait for an idea to be ready, while you wait to be ready to write that idea. I think it's good to have short-term projects and long-term projects. I think that's a really empowering and hopeful note to end on here, just that there's no set timeline for the creative process. It's just all about being creative, you know, keeping the juices flowing in a way that's right for you, as it were, and, um, you know, things will pan out. All right. That's our time for today. Victoria, thank you so much for coming on the show. I feel like I've learned a ton. Just really appreciate the time you've taken and everything you've shared. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Listeners, be sure to check out Gallant. This is one you will not want to miss. Um, We also have special editions of the book with beautiful stenciled edges on our website store. So be sure to check those out as well. Our next guest will be Emily XR Pan, New York Times bestselling author of The Astonishing Color of After, which won the APALA Honor Award and the Walter Honor Award. It was also a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize, long listed for the Carnegie Medal and named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 best YA books of all time. Emily co-created the Foreshadow Anthology, teaches creative writing, and lives in Brooklyn, New York. Her next novel, An Arrow to the Moon, comes out next month. If you'd like a first chapter critique from Emily, get us your work by March 24th. We'll be doing a special edition for Emily as well, so be sure to stay tuned on social media or subscribe to our newsletter to get a first look. Books are available on our store website now. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.